still have your Bibles open to uh, page 958 or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 34. So that's our sermon text for today. And uh, as Jason read that for us, you probably noticed that it's about the Lord's Supper, otherwise known as communion. And it's specifically about a problem at the church in Corinth, ancient Corinth, concerning their observance of the Lord's Supper, a problem. So over the years, I have experienced various problems associated with the Lord's Supper. There have been times when uh, the plates were being passed through the congregation and people would drop them. Uh, So Deacons who are going to be passing out the plates this morning, your fears are absolutely real. That can happen. hate to tell you that, but happened before, it's going to happen again. May it not happen to you today. Other problems, one time in our church, uh, when we were meeting at Millbrook High School in the early days, we actually ran out of cups. We ran out of communion cups, and we were serving, and there was none left. For the people there. And and while that's a good problem to have, that was really embarrassing. So there were more people there that day than uh, we had anticipated. So praise God and oops on us. Problems during the Lord's Supper. And then there was COVID communion. Do you remember COVID communion with those nasty little combo cups where some genius somewhere thought that they could go ahead and make a cup with, with juice in it, and then have that little lid thing on top that you're supposed to peel back, and inside was that piece of styrofoam that they called bread. Do you remember COVID communion? The worst part about that is I remember standing out back in the yard where we had COVID church, and uh, I couldn't get mine open. And so here I was leading communion, unable to participate because I couldn't get the thing open. <laughs> problems. The most notorious problem, though, in my experience was at Timberlake Baptist Church, where I got to serve as one of the pastors for 20 years. And uh, one particular Sunday, we had a whole service where we celebrated the Lord's Supper. Every aspect was about the Lord's Supper that particular Sunday. And we got special bread made by a local Indian restaurant. And it was non-bread And the smell of that bread was amazing, and it just wafted through the whole congregation. And uh, after that worship service, all of the children in the church, not all of them, but a bunch of the children of the church ran up to the front, and uh, they were standing there just looking wide-eyed at this bread and smelling it. And one of the assistant pastors walked up and they said, can we eat some? And he let them. And so just imagine this horde of little children and the assistant pastor standing up, stuffing their faces with this non-bread after the communion. It was incredibly embarrassing. Well, those problems are nothing compared to the problem that was happening at the church in Corinth. 
This text that we're reading today is one of the most familiar texts to all of us, is it not? I mean, we read this text literally every month, 12 times a year. We read this text. It's really familiar. So we know what this, ter- uh, this text talks about. We know that Paul gives instructions about the Lord's Supper. And Christians often come here and uh, we sort of mine this text for all of the gold that we can get about who should be coming to the table, who should not be coming, the theology behind the Lord's Supper and instructions about the observance of the Lord's Supper. But I wonder if we understand why Paul was talking to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper in the first place. Because Paul was not giving a theological dissertation about communion. Paul was addressing a problem in the church concerning the Lord's Supper. And that's where we need to start this morning. So let's begin with verse 17 through 22. And we're going to see the problem concerning the Lord's Supper in the ancient church of Corinth. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place... When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. There's a problem at this local church in Corinth. And the problem needs to be addressed by Paul, who was the founding pastor of the church. So look in verse 17. Paul says, I cannot commend you. The opposite of commending someone is rebuking for an issue that needs to be addressed. And you can hear that tone. What? I will not commend you about this. You can hear that Paul's very upset about this. This comes right after verse 2, above in chapter 11, when Paul said, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. Paul had good things to say, but now he says, but I am not going to commend you about this. We understand that this problem involves when you come together as a church. You see that? Five times. When, when in a small section, somebody repeats something five times, like I do often in my sermons, you know it's important. Paul is addressing this five times. Look at verse 17. 
when you come together as a church, verse 18, 29, 33, 34, when you come together as a church. So this problem was occurring not individually out in the world somewhere at, the, at their homes or at the jobs. This was a problem when they came together as a church, just like we are here this morning. And this problem is serious. In verse 17, Paul says that whatever they're doing, when they gather as a church, look at this phrase at the end of verse 17. It's not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, it'd be better if you guys didn't come together at all, if this is what you're going to do. Stop it. So, what's the problem? Verse 18. Specifically, there are divisions. Verse 19, there are factions among you. So this church right now is divided. Our church, you're divided into sections. Sections, 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 sections. But that's not the kind of division Paul's talking about here, is it? The kind of division that Paul is talking about here is relational division. And it's specifically along the lines of socioeconomics, where the rich, the influential, those with status in society are somehow humiliating those who are poor and have nothing. This problem involves divisions and factions in the body. The haves versus the have-nots. And verse 20, Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. You can call it whatever you want to, but don't call this the Lord's Supper. So this division and faction is happening when they come together and observe the Lord's Supper. Well, the problem here in a nutshell is this, that the meal, which should literally unite the church, was dividing the church. It was being marked by self-indulgence and indifference toward others. Verse 18 and 19, look in the text there. The, there were divisions and factions among them. Of all things, the Lord's Supper should accentuate and intensify what that church and this church has in common. We have in common one thing, not socioeconomic, not race not gender. We only have one thing in common here. Not Target or Walmart. And it's not even America. We have one thing in common here. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper should accentuate our unity. But in the church at Corinth, it was further intensifying the divisions, the differences that were among them. In that day, churches gathered in homes. They didn't gather in buildings like this. They gathered in homes, and typically the only homes big enough would have been the homes of the wealthy. And so because of that, there was a natural division going on, just like the natural divisions of our 
sections here. But in that particular society, the divisions would have been inside and outside. People didn't have homes big enough to hold the whole church. And so some people naturally were on the inside while others were on the outside looking in. Now, we might say, well, that's only, you know, that just happens now. What Paul's saying here is that there was intention behind those who were on the inside, those who were on the outside. Most likely, this wealthy member of the home was doing what, what Corinthians naturally do, and that's invite their status, the, the, the people who are of the same status as them, onto the inside while leaving those of the lower classes and lower status on the outside. And listen, you can do that in government. You can do that on the plantation if you want to, but you don't do dare do that in the church. But here, it seems like one of the possible scenarios is that the wealthy were inviting their friends, their rich and influential friends, to come onto the inside for this supper, and the others were remaining on the outside. Now, we know that the Lord's Supper was part of a larger meal at that time. Here, people are going hungry. People are getting drunk. This is a full meal. People were bringing their own meals to this. This was not just a tiny little piece of bread or a tiny little cup of juice like we do in our modern societies. This was a full meal. And so what would happen was in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Each one went ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry while the other gets drunk. One goes hungry while the other gets drunk at the same meal. Why? Because verse 21a, they were bringing their own food. Those who were wealthy would have had much more and better food than those who were very poor. Can you imagine? Those who are wealthy on the inside of the house, feasting from their own food baskets, so much so that they're getting drunk on the inside of the house, while the poor on the outside have nothing or have so little to bring. Paul says that the end result is that they were despising the church and look, um, look at verse 22, humiliating those who have nothing. Humiliating those who have nothing. Ultimately, the problem was that the church at Corinth was celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that was absolutely contrary to it. Paul says, call it whatever you want, but don't call it the Lord's Supper. That seems so appalling to us, doesn't it? I mean, to think of their self-indulgence, to think of their indifference toward the people on the outside, it's ghastly. But I wonder if we were to turn the word of God on us like a mirror, 
I wonder if we don't see our own indifference and self-indulgence. Now, what we see here is active indifference and active indulgence, don't we? People indulging themselves and not caring about the other people in the church. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Paul says some are getting drunk, which means that they are eating and drinking so much to their fill, while others are what? Not, it doesn't say they just don't have a lot. It says they're going hungry. Same house, same church, same time, same meal. Active, purposeful indulgence and indifference. Do you see any of that in your own heart, in your own life? Maybe it would be easier to see passive indifference, passive indulgence in our own hearts, where, where it's not so much that we just fill our own bellies and don't care about anybody else, but that it's we take care of our own interests and we just are not others-minded. We use our time and our money and our relationships and our resources for self. We invest so much in our own family that we have no time for anyone else. It's indulgence and indifference nonetheless, is it not? Passive or active, it's still ghastly. And it's still contrary contrary to the very nature of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate, which is why Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper. You'll notice in verse 23 through 26 that Paul talks about the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Against the problem there, he says, listen, the reason this is so awful and appalling is because it's contrary to the very nature of what you're inside celebrating. <laughs> what are you inside celebrating? What, why has the church come together? To celebrate the self-sacrifice of Jesus for us. And we do it in such a way that is self-indulging and indifferent? Let's read verse 23 through 26 and see the purpose of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The very essence and meaning and symbolism of the Lord's Supper is the self-sacrificial, others-minded death of Jesus Christ. It's his body for us. Listen, where there's sin, there must be death. God is a righteous judge. And when we sin against God, there's a penalty to be paid. When we sin against each other, there's a penalty to be paid. God is a righteous God. And he said, the soul that sins, it shall die. So where there is sin, there must be death. And because of God's love and grace and mercy, God did not leave mankind under the penalty of death because we would have all died, every single one of us. But God sent his own son. Now think about that for a moment. Sent his own son, crushed his own son, poured out all of the wrath that our sins deserved on his own son so that there was no wrath left for us, only mercy, only grace for those who will come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus, the night before he died on the cross, at the same time he was betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter, Jesus gave us a perpetual celebration of what he was about to do. He said, this bread that I'm about to eat, this is my body, which is two words. Can you say them with me? What? For you. Self-sacrifice. Others-minded. Every time we come to this table, we celebrate Jesus's others-minded self-sacrifice. That's the purpose of the table. And he said, this cup, this cup that is full of wine represents my blood, which is actually making a covenant that secures you so that you're no longer separated from God, but you're now brought into a covenant like marriage to God, where you're, a, instead of being outcasts, you're now adopted as children of God again. My blood, my death secures that covenant, what? For you, others-minded, self-sacrifice. Paul says you can't celebrate others-minded self-sacrifice by self-indulgence, and indifference toward others. You can't do that. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember, number one, and rejoice in the sacrifice of Jesus that accomplishes our salvation. Notice, do this in remembrance of me, twice. In remembrance. Remembering is not merely recalling to mind the facts of past events. It is 
remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in such a way that we feel our own need and rejoice in his provision for us. If you don't see your need for a savior, then this is nothing. Puritan John Flavel said, an affectionate remembrance is when we so call Christ and his death to our minds as to feel the powerful impressions thereof upon our hearts. Not just a mental thing, but it is a spiritual participation. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where we participate with the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith, just as we eat with our mouths we participate with our faith again and again and again. This meal remembers specifically the death of Christ, proclaims the death of Christ. So we remember and rejoice in essence in the cross. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, if you're going to boil my ministry down to a nutshell, here it is. We preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. We have no standing before God except for the righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ is our sanctification. He is the one who cleanses us and makes us clean and holy again. Jesus makes sinners saints. How? By his death, by his bodily sacrifice and the blood that cleanses us from all sin. And that is our boast. That's our status, not socioeconomic haves and have-nots. In Christ, we're all haves because we all used to be have-nots. And there is no division at the cross. So Paul says, how dare you? How dare you have insiders and outsiders? How dare you think little of, despise the church that God loves? You'll stand before him and give an account for that. How dare you humiliate those who have nothing to bring by sitting on the inside and indulging yourself and being indifferent? to those who are around you. It would be absurd to celebrate the self-sacrifice of Jesus in a self-serving way, would it not? And so Paul gives a warning. Verse 27 through 32, he not only has, uh, exposes the problem and gives the purpose, but then he gives a warning. Verse 27 through 32. Whoever therefore 
eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person and examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Warning. Warning. Celebrating the Lord's Supper while living contrary to the Lord's Supper, will invite judgment. And that goes for everybody in the room, including me. Celebrating the Lord's Supper while living contrary to the Lord's Supper will invite, keyword, judgment. How do I know it's the key word? Like five sentences, he mentions judgment seven times. Seven times the word judgment comes up. The word examine, it's the word judgment, just in a different form. So is discerning, so is condemned, and then judgment or judged is mentioned four more times. So what does it mean to, in verse 27... Eat or drink in an unworthy manner. It means you eat and drink in a manner that's not consistent with the purpose or the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Right? It's not that you came dressed in a certain way that wasn't right or, or you didn't, you know? Some of, it's that you're celebrating something and then living contrary to it. Or, or while you're celebrating it, like the Corinthians, they were obviously doing it in a self-serving and an indifferent way toward others. So, so let's just stop for a question for a moment, a little self-reflection. Is there a chance that you or we as a church might be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning while conscientiously, unrepentantly living in a way that is contrary to the Lord's Supper? If so, Paul says you're inviting God's judgment on you. Verse 27, you will be guilty before the Lord. The one who participates in an unworthy manner is liable, chargeable, will be held responsible for the body and blood of Christ, which means that they will answer to God and they're worthy of judgment for this abuse. You're acting in the opposite way. Verse 30, Paul warns that some judgment for these spiritual sins are actual physical weakness, illness, and even death. 
Their sin was despising God's church and humiliating their brothers and sisters. And Paul says, and you know, God has already judged some among your number. They're weak, they're ill, and some have died. We have other stories about blatant sin among the church and death occurring as a judgment. And then Paul is very careful at the end, especially in verse 32, to explain that even that judgment for a true Christian is the loving and gracious discipline of God, like a parent that causes us to stop doing what is harmful to ourselves and harmful to the rest of his kids, his church. So in order to avoid judgment and in order to participate in a manner that is worthy that is consistent with the purposes of this table, Paul says in verse 28 that we are supposed to examine ourselves, note, examine ourselves, not each other. (laughs) Examine ourselves, how? By discerning the body. We examine by discerning. Look at verse 28. Verb tenses are important. Let a person examine himself, imperative, do this. So eat, drink, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, verse 29, is a participle. You examine by discerning. What does it mean to discern the body? It's understanding the significance and the meaning of this meal. It's coming to this meal, understanding what it represents, not coming here to have a party with your friends. Now, now for us, we don't ever think about this as a party with friends. I'm not going to go eat a tiny little piece of bread and drink the tiniest little thing of Welch's grape juice or wine in some churches uh, and have a party with my friends. But if weekly you were going over to your neighbor's house, the rich guy next door, and he was your best friend, that's a party with your friends, especially if you were on the inside. So you come understanding the significance and meaning of this meal. You don't come as if it's just simply another meal. And when you come understanding, then you do what? You examine yourself in light of it. What does this meal say? Friends, what does this meal say? This meal says that God sent his son to die in your place. You know what that means? You deserve death. If you don't understand that about yourself yet, this meal's not for you. If if you haven't seen God's judgment against your sin and God's provision for your sin in Christ and come running to Christ and said, yes, thank you for your mercy and grace. I am a hell-deserving sinner, but you're not going to give me hell. You gave me Jesus. If you haven't come to that place yet, I pray that you will. But don't celebrate this. It's not true of you yet. Oh, but it could be soon. But we come to this table in light of what it means. 
So we examine ourselves and we see our own sin and our own need for the Savior. Do you see your own sin? Do you see your need for a Savior? And when we do that, we look around the room and we don't see haves and have nots, do we? We see a room full of sinners who have been saved by the grace of God through the Son. That levels the playing field. There's not races here. There's not genders here primarily. We have two kinds of people, sinners and those who have been made saints by grace through faith in Christ, not of ourselves. Examine yourself by discerning the body. So we've seen the problem. We've seen the purpose of the Lord's Supper. We see then the, uh, the warning about the Lord's Supper. And finally, he gives an exhortation. He sums it up, verse 33 and 34. Look at his concluding remark. So then, now that I've talked to you about the problem and the purpose and the warning, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, do what? Wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I'll give you directions when I come. Apparently, Paul wanted to start a whole list of other things, but he's like, yeah, I don't have time for that. The end exhortation, the solution to this problem is what? Examine yourselves, understand, discern what this meal is all about, and then what? Verse 33, wait for one another. Rather than going ahead, each with his own meal, wait. So is it, uh, I don't think it's just strictly temporal. I don't think that means just wait till everybody arrives. Certainly, at a minimum means, wait till everybody arrives. And in that particular culture, who would have been the ones to arrive late? Those who had absolutely no control over their own schedules, like slaves and the poor who had to work long hours, while the wealthy could come early, stay all day, and enjoy, and leave absolutely nothing for the rest. Wait, but don't you sense there's more than just temporal waiting here? Don't you sense what Paul is saying here is think about others, be more concerned about others than your self-indulgence, care about others, wait for them, friends. And the reason that I say that is because the same word here is translated elsewhere, accept and welcome. Not just wait, but accept one another. Welcome one another. The the bottom line is this. Do not look to your own needs, but look to the needs of other people around you. Why? Because that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did not think about himself. He sacrificed himself for us. 
the only way to celebrate this is not merely by eating and drinking. It's by living an others-minded life. Jesus said this to the crowds. If anyone would come after me, ooh, wonder what he's going to say next. Here's, here's the requirement of everybody who's going to come after me and be my disciple. You ready? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it look like? By faith, to follow Jesus, it looks like denying yourself, taking up your cross, which is not putting on a pretty gold emblem on the end of a chain. It's taking up literally the cross of death to self. And then following Jesus. You can't claim to have died to yourself when you continue to live in sin. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is constantly putting self and sin to death because, not in your own power, but because Jesus took all of the penalties away and now his spirit lives within you and you're a son of God forever and secure forever. So what does that look like? What does it look like to really celebrate the Lord's Supper? Does it look like just showing up at church once a month and eating a tiny little piece of bread and, and a tiny little cup of juice? Or maybe should we just have a full meal and that's what it looks like to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Friends, that is part of it. But celebrating the Lord's Supper is the perpetual celebration of the self-sacrifice and others-mindedness of Christ by living others-minded self-sacrificially. Practically, what's that look like as I close? What does that really look like? To live thinking about others and serving others. Honestly, it's beautiful. And we have a church full of it. One of our ladies regularly pays attention to what's going on in other people's lives and then sends them cards of encouragement. If you've been around here very long, you know who I'm talking about. A young couple with two kids regularly shows up to this worship service 20 to 25 minutes early just so that they can talk with other people. You don't think that's a self-sacrifice to do that with two little kids? Self-sacrifice looks like one of our men standing and talking and praying with another man after the service who's going through a really hard time. Others-minded. 
or a 20-something member of our church who has asked me on more than one occasion if there's someone with a financial need in our church that he could help meet. 20-something, others-minded, sacrificial. It looks like one couple serving another couple who's been going through so many health issues lately. They take them food. They've stayed overnight to help when necessary. They, they take them to doctor's appointments. They just sit and talk. You know what that is? That's others-mindedness. It requires self-sacrifice. It's not the cross. But it is because of the cross. It's one of our lady members who prays for specific groups of people every day, you included. And she often texts you to tell you that she's prayed for you today. It's one of our new members who didn't wait around to see if other people were going to invite them over, but they had probably as many people into their home so far this year as I have. And this is my job. You know why? Others-mindedness. It's an older couple who's meeting weekly with a younger couple who's going through a marriage crisis. Others-minded. Self-sacrifice. Way out of their comfort zone. But they're not indifferent. They see a need. They meet it. This list could go on for pages. But I think you get the point. It doesn't have to be big. It's just taking up your cross daily in self-sacrifice rather than self-indulgence, is in others' mindedness rather than a self-focus. So my prayer, friends, is that every Christian here will celebrate Jesus' sacrifice by us, not only by eating the bread and drinking this cup, but by following Jesus in others-minded service. That is how we glorify God in everything that we do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your incredible love and grace to us in that you would lay down your life. You would absorb the penalty for my sin, our sin collectively. You endured the horrors of hell for billions of people. All of that wrath of God on you. Only God could endure that. Only God could rise from the dead after that. Jesus, by faith, we we bow at your feet and we say, you are God. You are not only creator, but you are redeemer. And we praise you. May we celebrate your self-sacrifice 
for us by living for others and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.